Welcome back to All Things Digital and All Things Accessible. And with me again is my great guest, Dr. Scott Hollier. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Kenneth. Wonderful to be back again. Now, in the last episode, we talked about internet security. And it's a good door opener to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the Internet of Things. Now, that is the first time I've heard of that term. Can you spell that out for us? What does it mean? Sure. The Internet of Things, uh, there's a few other terms like the Internet of Everything and uh, the Web of Things is sometimes interchanged as well. And basically what the Internet of Things or IoT uh, is often referring to is when everyday devices become connected to the web. So essentially it means that uh, we have the ability to control things. It might be that we control things in our home. Uh, It might be that we're away from our homes or uh, out and about and we can control things from um, anywhere we are uh, anywhere in the world. So a few examples of things around the Internet of Things is um, being able to, say, control your heating system. You might want to check on how your groceries are in the fridge and what new things you need to buy, like replacing that milk when the fridge tells you that the milk needs replacing. Um, and it might even be just as easy as um, using something like a digital smart speaker assistant like an Amazon Echo or a Google Home to ask you to put the radio station on. So there's lots of different things you can use it for and uh, hence Internet of Things. Correct me, I'm hearing this I just want to clarify. So you're saying that the internet is going to be pervasive in all segments or all quarters of life and provide us with the ability of doing things like you say, you know, adjust the lighting system and turn the air conditioning on and all of that's internet connected? Absolutely. It's both scary and exciting. I mean, to share some of the things I see as being real benefits of this in general terms, I think it's great that... Uh, we do have the ability to control things remotely. So if we are on our way home from work, it might be the case it's a really hot day and we want to make sure that our house has the air conditioner at that perfect temperature just before we get in the door so we can uh, use our smartphones to connect to our air conditioner and tell it, for example, to set that temperature to that uh, optimal 21 degrees so it's nice and cool when we get in. But probably the thing I'm most excited about Internet of Things is... um, I'm not very good when I first wake up in the morning. And so the idea that uh, whatever I set my alarm clock to, it will then talk to my coffee machine and get coffee brewing just as I wake up, I think would be absolutely (laughs) awesome. So it's really about that connectivity and convenience. The more devices we have that are connected online, our ability to control them by a smartphone or a digital assistant really does open the door in terms of being able to uh, assist us and uh, make it easier for us to do things. Right. I'm just hearing this and gives me a bit of a jitters, like you say, there's something that uh, I suppose I don't quite understand. But is there a chance that we might become so dependent on the internet doing all these things with us that when the internet connection goes down, we're sort of like lost little children in the woods? There are certainly risks. And I think it is a a fair point to say, look, it might be all well and good that we can use a Google Home to say, you know, turn on our lights, but we should still have the option to just flick the switch uh, to turn on the light as well. So I do agree that we shouldn't uh, give all our control over to automated systems. And likewise, if uh, the power does go out or we lose connectivity, yeah, we don't want our life to come to a grinding halt. And I think a third thing that um, can be an issue disability specific, um, while there are huge benefits Um, One potential issue is that if you become very comfortable in your own home being able to just shout things to the house and have things happen, then there is um, some concern in some research that perhaps people won't want to go outside as much and won't want to go and explore the world because you don't have control over what happens to you outside your home. So 
there is a risk there that uh, if we do become just that little too comfortable in how our devices respond to us, that, um, yeah, we might want to stay put instead of exploring what's out there in the world. Right. Well, now, we're going to explore those bits a little later on. But first, there is a difference, and there is a difference between the industrial and the consumer sites. Tell us a little bit about what each of these means and how they are differentiated. Well, broadly speaking, there's uh, you can divide the Internet of Things into two parts. So as you say, there's uh, the more industrial side and the more consumer side. So by industrial, what we're saying is that these are really the components that are inside our everyday devices. So this might be uh, the sensors in our fridge, for example, that uh, monitor the temperature to make sure our food's kept cold. And then there's the actuators, which actually will adjust the temperature um, to make it go up and down depending on the environment outside to make sure that uh, the fridge is kept cool inside. And then there's the consumer side. And the consumer side is basically how we interact with IoT in a very easy way. So some really good examples would be an app on a smartphone, uh, which we can open up that app. We can say we do have a smart fridge. We can uh, see all the features and we can, um, you know, the app, for example, the smart fridge might let the app know that uh, we're running out of milk and um, then it might ask if it wants it to order a new one for us. Uh, And then um, we've also got things like smart speakers, digital assistants like Google Home, which can, uh, you know, we can speak to it and it can then issue commands and through that it can give us lots of information about what's going on out there. For example, I have a Google Home in my house and I could just say, okay, Google, good morning. And at that point, it then gives me the weather it then uh, selects certain podcasts that I've um, asked it to and it will um, give me complete news update, weather information and uh, within a few minutes and then I'm good to go for my day. So I think why IoT is a lot more popular now is because that consumer side has really caught up and it's a lot easier for us now to engage with these uh, fairly technical devices around the home. Right. Now I'm just thinking aloud, if you're able to speak to the Google device, Will the Google device be able to compile, collate information that's supposed to be part of your diary and then put it into your smart device? Does it go that far? It can do. Uh, There's a lot of things it can do, even down to um, being able to record, um, you know, shopping lists or tasks. Um, It can even step you through cooking um, by reading out um, step-by-steps for recipes. It's surprising how much it can do, and it's able to do more all the time. Unlike a lot of devices like your more traditional computers, if you want to upgrade your computer, you need to spend a lot of money on extra hardware, and then you might need to get a new version of Windows. But because the way uh, consumer IoT works is often um, we're giving commands that then gets whisked off to, say, Google. They then figure out what it is that you've asked and then they whisk back the answer. Because of that, whenever they want to upgrade the device, uh, it's very easy for companies like Google to upgrade it. So the really good thing about the consumer-based IoT, like smart speakers and digital assistants, is that over time they get better and we don't have to do anything to make that happen. Right. Now, I'm sitting down here and I'm saying, okay, maybe I'll have a go at this. But for someone who's not quite convinced, what are the main advantages and benefits for someone who's visually impaired or someone who's blind? I think the best benefits of buying something like a a Google Home or um, in the US, the Amazon Echo is the, the most popular one with the Alexa digital assistant. The really great benefit is that you can essentially ask things and for a lot of cases, the answers will come back and things can just happen. So 
One of the things that I find really useful is that when I can't read, for example, I have a stereo system with a panel that I just can't read about what radio station it is. Instead of trying to figure out how to drive that device, I can go to my Google Home and I can say, OK, Google, play SBS Chill on TuneIn, and then it starts playing that radio station. So I could just give a verbal command and it just happens. Or I can say, OK, Google, what's on ABC News? And it will just start playing me the podcast for the latest news from ABC. And I think... Being able to have that easy verbal interaction, and if you then install things like home automation, so you might have some smart lighting and connect other devices like heating of house and things like that to it, then you can also start controlling things like that. And in particular with the Google ecosystem, if you plug in a device like a Google Chromecast, then you can also say things like, okay, Google, play a collection of music videos from the 1990s, and that will just start playing on your TV. So it can become very powerful, and I think the other benefit is that it's very affordable. So the cheapest Google Home device uh, is less than $100. To buy a Chromecast is about $50, whilst it does build up a bit in expense as you start rolling out things like smart lighting and smart heating and things like that. The actual base units are quite affordable, and so I think we're seeing this mesh of um, affordability combined with the ability for devices to understand the things we're saying, and over time we're seeing an increased awareness as to how these devices can actually do what we ask it to do, and I think those things together make it a very exciting thing for um, someone who has a vision impairment. Mm. Now, we've gone on to the topic of acquiring these devices, and you just talked about pricing and affordability. But what about the complexity of having them installed and keeping them up to date? Would you need to do things such as getting updates so that the system is actually able to recognize what you need and be able to access the things which are available for the user? It's a great question, and the answer is both yes and no, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) So, look, in terms of the yes, say you went out to um, any major retail chain and like uh, JB Hi-Fi or Good Guys or something, and you bought a Google Home today, then it's largely a case of plugging it in, connecting it to your Wi-Fi. Look, it gives you some information on how you can do that using a um, its own app on the smartphone. And once it's all connected, it basically sits there and is ready for you to give commands. And from that point on, it largely takes care of itself. However, if you want to start connecting other things to it, like your smart lighting and smart heating, then that is still a bit of a complicated journey, and that will still take a bit of time to connect each device. And often it might be incompatible with what you already have. So, for example, you might have a great air conditioning unit in your house, but you may need to replace it or even or get some sort of interface to make it smart. So these are, are some of the complexities. Probably the biggest complexity, though, is interoperability. And just to explain what that is, uh, interoperability is when there's not compatibility between different products. So as I was saying, in Australia, the most popular smart speaker, digital assistant, is the Google Home. But in the US, the most popular one is uh, the Amazon Echo. And uh, Microsoft have just released their own one called the Invoke, and Apple will be releasing its HomePod uh, early next year. So with this in mind, um, it does make it really tricky in that um, there's going to be basically four major ecosystems of technology. And at this point in time, uh, if you want to have your house with smart lighting, well, you need to choose. Do you have the smart light bulbs compatible with the Google Home or the Echo or the Invoke or you know, potentially the HomePod? And this is where it gets tricky for consumers because 
until interoperability issues are dealt with, we still have to spend a lot of money investing in one particular ecosystem. And if that doesn't work out or if a company takes a different direction, then you're a bit stuck. And so there's a lot of work going on internationally, and I know we'll cover more on um, international work in a a later uh, recording. But um, there's a lot of work going on to try to get manufacturers to have this cross-compatibility. So, for example, it doesn't matter whether you have the Amazon Echo smart speaker or the Google Home. If you buy a smart light bulb, it'll just work with whatever device you've bought. I mean, if you think of it like a web browser, we don't need a Microsoft web browser to look at Microsoft web pages. Um, But in the IoT space, it is a little bit like that at the moment. So hopefully that interoperability issue will be addressed and then people can basically buy the products they need with whatever their preferences of brand and uh, and it'll all just work together. Right. The other question that I have sort of milling in my head is if one becomes dependent and becomes trusting of their systems and anything goes wrong, who carries liability for anything that goes awry? That's an excellent question, and uh, again, it's another one of these ones where it's uh, not entirely clear. I mean, for example, not that long ago, the Google Home Mini, which is the cheapest Google device smart speaker, actually had to disable by software the buttons on the device because they discovered that uh, it was unintentionally, according to Google, recording everything uh, in your home. So the way these smart speakers work is that they listen for their keyword, Um, So in the case of Google, it's uh, OK Google or Hey Google. And if anyone is listening to this with the Google Home, I'm sorry, I just set off your device. Um, (laughs) And in the case of uh, the Amazon Echo, it's Alexa is the keyword. So these devices are always listening for that keyword. And once it gets that keyword, it then starts to um, listen to what you're saying as a command. However, with the Google Home Mini, um, it was because it's always listening, it was actually always sending information, or at least uh, big chunks of it, um, straight to Google of just everyday conversation in your home, which really isn't cool. So Google had to um, send a software update to disable the buttons temporarily while they try and um, fix it. So in that case, um, you had a big company that did take action. But in terms of responsibility, hard to say. And there's certainly been no penalty to Google for... um, you know, basically recording what people are doing in their homes and sending it to themselves. Uh, so, uh, yes, this remains a really big question mark in terms of privacy and security. Yes, and also because of the remote chance, maybe, but personal injury and damage to property if anything goes a little bit berserk. Well, yes, if you're in the process of setting up a smart home, I mean, that's going to be quite an involved process. And if products are not entirely as advertised, um, and that's because of the mechanism around the IoT uh, functionality, then yeah, there is a, I guess in terms of standard product warranties, it's probably all right with the individual component. But uh, yes, if Google sends down some sort of command and it crashes your house, um, I'm not sure exactly where you stand <laughs> on uh, warranties and things like that. Now, um, as far as the compatibility issue is concerned, do you think that the four manufacturers are motivated to want to work together or is there still the question of IP and things that are going to be standing in the way of making it compatible and easier for the user to use? I think in the long run, it'll have to all come together. I mean, we've seen lots of history in electronic development you know, the old VHS beta argument from the uh, 80s, which eventually um, saw the, the beta format killed off for the consumer. Uh, we saw um, HD DVD versus Blu-ray, and Blu-ray won out on that one. I think eventually manufacturers do come to the conclusion that it's actually a lot better for everyone to uh, to throw their weight behind 
uh, a common solution. I mean, at the moment, it's crazy that a company like Philips has to consider, do we make um, four different light bulbs for four different devices? And ultimately, they just want to make one. So in the long run, I think we will start to see an uptake of standards as the standards become available to try to provide a more consistent experience for uh, people rolling out this technology, but it's certainly not there yet. We've also seen evidence from companies like Apple, which are you know a little bit touchy about the, the topic of um, opening up their um, their environment for other other companies to get involved in. A um, good example recently was that um, Microsoft have now um, created a Cortana app, its digital assistant for um, Android. So now you can say, for example, get SMSs to your Android smartphone, and they will can automatically come up in Windows, so you can reply to them in Windows. And so there's cross. Uh, company cross-operating system work there, but uh, Microsoft approached Apple to see if they could do the same thing, and Apple said, "Absolutely not. You're not getting in- involved in our operating system." So, um, <laughs> you know, I think that's um, it's interesting that yes, Apple in particular seem a little touchy about this, but I think in the long run, it's all got to come together because uh, consumers want to have choice about what device they want, but they also don't want to be stuck in a solution that um, you know may have a limited endpoint. Yeah. Now, what are the drawbacks there in the system as it stands right now? I think the biggest drawbacks at the moment is that it's just so new and and it's so evolving. Um, And there's also so many different ways to engage with IoT, some of which are accessible and some of which are not. So the three major ways that people can interact with IoT equipment are the first is a smartphone and usually via an app. The second is through the digital assistant with the smart speaker, as we've talked about. And the third is when you might have a device like a smart fridge, which has a giant touchscreen on it, and that interface of that touchscreen not only controls the fridge, but controls all other stuff around your house for convenience um, when you're in the kitchen. Now, in terms of disability, certainly the smartphone is a great solution. If the apps are built in the right way with accessibility in mind, then that's terrific, and you can use your screen reader and things like that to uh, get access to IoT equipment. And likewise, from a blind and vision impaired perspective, the smart speaker is a good option because you can just verbally talk to it. There's a question mark over how well that supports some other disability groups, but from a vision impaired point of view, that's pretty good. But the touchscreen on the fridge is a really tricky one, and with Samsung and LG, who both have uh, models along these lines, and some other products with touchscreen interfaces, the biggest issues is that, firstly, the touchscreen isn't very accessible. But then again, even if they put accessibility features like a screen reader in their interface, the operating systems that drive these are not usually our the operating systems we're familiar with. So we might have to learn yet another screen reader, yet, yet another piece of assistive technology just to drive it. And if we start rolling this out across our homes or our offices, we might have to learn 10 more screen readers, you know. And so, <laughs> so this becomes a really tricky thing. Um, so... Ultimately, because this space is evolving and it's still a very new space, I think we will start to see you know, some more consistencies in the long run. But at the moment, there is still those three choices. And so you know, the advice I'd give to any uh, blind or vision impaired person thinking of embarking on a um, IoT device um, is probably to start with a smart speaker um, to just get a feel for how you interact with it. But before you go on a massive home automation um, project, I just strongly recommend having a look at what type of interfaces are there? What type of uh, systems do they connect to? Because, yes, there is still that risk as this is a very evolving and emerging technology space uh, that uh, it could get really tricky really quickly. Yeah. Now, there are two things that I'm picking up from this last bit that you've just been explaining to us. One is there is a lack of a universal language, as you say, there might be 
you know, three or maybe six or a dozen different screen readers and the languages, we might end up having to learn to speak Klingon. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, as we move towards the new frontiers of these sorts of technology, is there a chance that it will change the work environment and make things more accessible for someone who is vision impaired to participate more fully in the employment field? I think it will. And whilst IoT has got a lot of press in terms of its home automation um, and the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas um, at the beginning of the 2017, the talk was Alexa Everything being the digital assistant in the Amazon Echo because uh, in this technology expo, which is the largest in the world, um, they were just displaying so many devices that had Alexa built in it, from fans to uh, light bulbs to security systems to uh, even a Ford motor car had, um, had Alexa as a way of driving, uh, not literally, but uh, driving the, uh, the interface of the car. And... <laughs> In the workplace, I think, yes, uh, you know, it's a logic there that um, we'll be able to, as we can have smart lighting and smart heating and smart interaction in our home, there's absolutely no reason why this couldn't be used to assist in productivity in the office. Um, And there's been some research I've done in in an education space, um, you know, just as an example of something that could be done in the office um, or at university or anywhere is um, having uh, an ability to easily control the temperature to optimise working conditions. It's um, quite often that the temperature of a working environment can make a big difference. And if you could, say, have an app that crowdsourced what temperature people wanted and to um, average that out and um, optimise the heating based on what everyone in the room wants it to be, then um, potentially that could really help um, work performance. So, yes, I think there's uh, some great potential there. So now that brings me to my question about your involvement in the Curtin University study, and you were part and parcel of the survey or the research um, initiative. Tell us what it was about, what it entailed, and what you've learned from it. Sure. I was one of four people involved in a Curtin University research project where we looked at the impact of the Internet of Things uh, on students with disabilities in relation to education. And uh, the research involved quite a bit of looking at the literature out there and different projects people have done in this space and also interviewing students with disabilities as to what they need uh, from education. And some of the things that the students recommended were uh, really, really interesting uh, in that space. And I think some of the ones that really jumped out at me was firstly, when a lecturer writes something on a whiteboard, why can't that smart board just immediately do uh, OCR scan on the handwriting, convert it into uh, text, and then put that text uh, into the uh, online learning management system so that students in the class can get it on their device immediately and students remotely can get it immediately as well. And I think that's just one example where we already have the technology to do that. Um, and it's just a matter of trying to link up the communication across the different devices so that that can happen. Another one that really jumped out at me, and I really like this one, I've got to say, is um, that there was a research project done that there was real-time monitoring of the lecturer and the students. And uh, several students in the project that we were taking said that they really liked the idea that the lecturer is always being monitored uh, with different sensors and things to see how their pitch and tone and information is registering with students. So if the lecturer is becoming boring, then the lecturer will know that in real time and can change their approach. And likewise, if the students are drifting off, well, then the lecturer knows that. And so the (laughs) students need to uh, pay more attention. And so, um, you know, there's this real-time adjustment of engagement because they're getting that real-time information to know 
that uh, people aren't getting the information registered in the way it should. And so, yeah, the lecturer can change the, the lecture and the students can um, provide some input as well. Um, well, that's spooky because those were the two thoughts that were going through my mind just before you started explaining. And, and I thought that, now nah, that's a little bit far-fetched and a bridge too far. But you're saying that it's possible because there is the technology that might bridge the gap between the interaction and engagement between lecturer and and students. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, students could very easily have, um, you know, sensors um, that uh, would register things like their breathing and uh, their mm. awareness and their pulse and, you know, all these things can have very discrete devices to monitor those things. And so lecturers could also be able to manage um, and monitor their breathing, their pitch, their tone. And through that, they could find out quite quickly if they need to adjust things to make it work for students. So it is fantastic that, you know, we're in this space. And importantly, it does need to be discrete though I mean you can't have the IOT in itself interrupting class you know so any solution has to be a discrete solution and also you know with the permission of people wanting to do it but I think that's just a small example of some uh, great potential benefits and it's definitely a space to watch. Well, so the applications are fine wide and it's just a matter of time before we see all of this realizing themselves in real-time and beneficial products and services. Absolutely. It's going to be a very interesting thing to watch in the coming years. IoT, as we know it, has only been with us for probably about three years uh, in the consumer space. So it's a very interesting space to watch. Well, if that has stretched your imagination, you can blame it on Dr. Scott Collier. (laughs) (laughs) And he's been our guest and will continue to be our guest on the following episode of All Things Digital all things accessible. Scott, wonderful that you've been here with us and we'll see you on the next episode of All Things Digital, All Things Accessible. This episode was edited by Matthew Clark.